Hello, I'm Dr. Eleanor Wadinobi, and this is Safeguarding Matters, a podcast by the Safeguarding Resource and Support Hub. In this episode, we take a look at safeguarding investigations. There are standards and procedures available for conducting safeguarding investigations. However, in reality, investigations are often more complex than the procedures allow. Issues such as risks to the survivor, local norms and culture, and safety and security mean that investigations are rarely straightforward and often require us to make some really difficult decisions. This podcast will take an honest look at these challenges and how we can begin to have open conversations to address them. In this episode, we'll be joined by Oge Chukudozier and Lucy Heaven-Taylor. Oge Chukudezie is a safeguarding and protection professional with over 15 years experience in the aid sector. She has worked with different organizations such as Africare, Christian Aid, and Save the Children. In these years, she has worked in various thematic areas, including education, HIV and AIDS, livelihoods, nutrition, and emergency response. Currently, Oge is the National Associate for the Resource and Support Hub Nigeria. Lucy Heaven-Taylor is a safeguarding consultant with 20 years experience in safeguarding and protection sexual exploitation, abuse, and harassment in the humanitarian and development sectors. She has conducted and supported on many investigations over the years and is a trainer on investigations for Bond and CHS Alliance, delivering training to NGOs, UN agencies, and the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. She developed CHS Alliance's guidelines for investigations into sexual exploitation and abuse. So let me turn the question over now to first Oge. Oge, tell me about your experience in undertaking investigations. How did you come into the work? How long have you been doing this work? Hi, thank you, Dr. Elena. So for my getting into investigations, I really didn't plan that, but it happened that, like you mentioned, I'm a protection expert and I've been working in protection thematic area. So while I was working with this organization, Save the Children, 
I was also now, you know, doubling as safeguarding focal points for the organization. And of course, safeguarding works hand in hand, if I would say, with investigations. It's really part and parcel of what we do in safeguarding. So it was at that point that I got involved in safeguarding and I was even sent for a training by then HAP in, in Uganda for a training on investigations. That was around 2012 and that's how I got into the investigations. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Now, Lucy, Tell me, please, about your experience in undertaking investigations and how you came into the work and how long you've been at it. Thank you, Dr. Eleanor. Well, like Oge, I came into it not really by design, but also almost by accident. So I've been working in the humanitarian and development sector for over 25 years, and I was working in humanitarian project management about 20 years ago, I was working for Save the Children and it just so happened that in the region I was covering, there was a child protection case. So I became involved just from that perspective and then became very interested in that work. So I then moved to work with Oxfam and I became their PSEA focal point for the humanitarian department. And as part of that, I was sent on the, the same training, in fact, that Oge referred to. Uh, which I then went on to become one of the trainers for. And then from that, a post was created in Oxfam for advisory support on PSEAH. Uh, so I was in that post for a few years and I'm now working as a consultant. So over that time, I've been involved in investigations as a consultant for quite a few different organisations. So both conducting the investigations myself, supporting on them and also providing training. Thank you so very much. Indeed, interesting journeys, both of you, and discover that, you know, at some point you have walked the same paths, albeit at different mm -hmm. times. Yeah. Interesting. Now, okay, what have been some of the key challenges in undertaking investigations in your context? And how have you approached them? Well, there are really loads of challenges with undertaking investigations. One of key is, for example, adequate resources. Investigation comes with resources. So in, for some organizations, it's not planned, it's not budgeted for. And when and if a case happens, a concern is raised, then, you know, they are like, oh, what do we do now? Because we don't have you know, the resources to actually, you know, undertake investigation and see it to the end. Then there is also the, the aspect of fear of where the investigation of SEAH can uh, put a survivor at risk of retaliation from the community. You know, in some of the communities we serve, when a, a girl, for example, is raped, that's actually you know, she is seen as having defiled the family name. So that, again, is something that organizations are afraid of because they don't want to cause more harm to the survivor and they are afraid to push this through because they are, you know, there is that fear that they might be exposing the survivor to 
risk of retaliation and stigmatization, you know, from the community. Then the other one, again, uh, is the fear of the perpetrator. This is also very real. You know, in some instances, of course, like we already know that SEAH actually lies on power dynamics. So usually the perpetrator, you know, is someone of high position or power in the community or organization. So there is this fear that probably the perpetrator uh, will be powerful enough and will really make the life of everybody involved very difficult if investigation is continued. So these are some of the challenges that um, organizations face when trying to undertake investigations. Thanks immensely for sharing those when you speak of the fear of retaliation for the survivor and fancy fear of the the perpetrator. Uh, I guess this is what drives silence and stigma for the survivor and and there's that also silence that drives impunity. Yes, let's now hear from you, Lucy as to some of the key challenges that you have experienced. And, you know, would like to hear also, how, how did you approach these challenges? Thank you, Dr. Eleanor. So in addition to the challenges that Oge and I have discussed, some other challenges that have come up have been, for example, quite often, people say what do we do when the organization doesn't have any skill in investigations internal to the organization another thing that comes up quite often is if we have a safeguarding incident or a safeguarding case or investigation does this mean that the organization is going to be less likely to get donor funding in the future and then something else that comes up as well is the concern that if we if we do address this, if we do follow up this safeguarding case, what if the perpetrator then goes on to sue the organisation or to take them through legal proceedings? So these are these are some of the things that I've encountered. Yes, it, it, indeed, there is that common thread of fear, as you have both outlined. Let's now look at how we can approach and actually practically address these challenges. So, okay, I'll come back to you, please. How have you approached these challenges that you have outlined? Yes, so in terms of, these are really very difficult. There is no one size fits all, but sharing from my experience, in terms of adequate resources, these are actually very genuine concerns that organizations have. But one key thing is that it's important to always know that you budget and plan, you know, for investigation. So that will be part of the safeguarding measures you, you put in place. So, for example, including safeguarding activities and budgets, including safe investigation in your, in your budget, in the organizational proposals and, and budgets. This actually will help you to at least have the resources that you need, you know, that the organization needs 
to undertake investigation when it, it, it happens because you don't want to be caught not prepared. It's better to be prepared, you know, and it doesn't happen than it happens and then you are not prepared. And some of the costs that actually needed would be like, for example, costs for travel. If a staff needs to maybe travel from one location to the other to conduct interviews with the, the survivor or, you know, other witnesses that need to be budgeted for. Legal costs, maybe there might be some legal costs and even cost for the survivor to under, undergo medical treatments. It's also important that, you know, this is included in budgeting purposes. So for RSH, we're actually developing a template and guide that will help in conducting investigations so that organizations will know, and there will be some templates that will come with that. Organizations will know how to budget for these things. We already have a tip sheet to, on how to integrate safeguarding in proposals. So that is already available on our hub. So that's really, those are the, the areas, you know, let's get ourselves prepared and include these costs in, in our budget. Then for the aspect of fear of the retaliation or stigmatization or discrimination against the survivor by the community, first, it's important that, you know, organizations know their context very well. And because, I mean, usually, the context is that you are working in this community. Probably you've had interactions with that community before. The staff now records, there is this record of safeguarding concern. So it's important to really know the context and to conduct risk assessment from the start to see what are the issues and you know the challenges that you know might happen so that you also prepare ahead. And whatever gaps you know, you need to develop mitigation measures, in, put, put mitigation measures in place to be able to address those gaps of that risk assessment shows. And then, of course, the issue of confidentiality is quite paramount. In, in cases of safeguarding and investigation, confidentiality is essential. So it's only those that need to know that should know. It shouldn't be something that everybody, you know, gets to know about this information. And in some instances, it might be work well that the organization, you know, have a, a close meeting with an identified family member of the survivor. If it's a child or, you know, uh, yeah, a young man, you know, so that might be something that the organization might need to do to talk with, with the family and, of course, provide care, show that concern. Because, of course, as part of the prevention methods that the organization you know, is doing, it's already raising awareness that the organization has zero tolerance to sexual exploitation abuse, you know, and then, of course, having your reporting mechanism. So organizations should be able to you know, make it clear that this is actually not what the organization stands for, but rather you know, the, the person has done it outside of their own. And then you let the, the trusted family member, you know, to know how the process organization is taking to handle, you know, the investigations of course, you know, to handle the case, including the investigation. So those are really parts of what organization can do to really reduce that retaliation or discrimination, knowing that really 
the survivor is not to be blamed. You know, usually how it is in our setting. I'm a Nigerian, you know, like, so in Africa, usually is the girl, is the woman that is blamed when there is issue of sexual exploitation and abuse. Oh, why did you go there? Oh, why did you do that? Oh, why that? Oh, why that? So knowing that the survivor is not to be blamed because there is the issue of power dynamics, this person actually exploited, the staff exploited this survivor. So that would maybe help to calm the, the family down and that discrimination or a retaliation will not happen to the, to the survivor. For fear of the perpetrator being very powerful, yes, this is actually... <laughs> quite yeah, usually happens because yeah, so this person is well recognized in, in the office. How do we even sometimes even the political will from the organization to, to take in on is not there. But again, knowing that it's not everybody in the organization that should know, if the, the alleged perpetrator needs to be given leave, you know, so sometimes it's not that you are you're sacking because of course, the investigation should happen and concluded before any decisions will be taken if the person is found wanting. So even if it means some organizations will decide, okay, we don't want this person to interfere, so the person goes on leave. So everybody, that other person knows, oh, this person has gone on leave. It's just leave, and then someone is covered. People go and leave in organizations. So not, and then the team, the small team that will handle the investigations will now conduct the interviews and, and, and activities at issue B. So making sure confidentiality is, you know, is, is very paramount in this, in this instance, it's very paramount. And of course, uh, risk assessments need to be conducted you know, to, to weigh and balance all that is needed. In all, we want, want to make sure that we are not doing harm to others and the protection needs are all covered. I know Lucy might have some other points, you know, experiences from her own side to, to add on to some of these challenges that have been identified and yeah, discuss more on them. Thank you, Okay. And some really, really interesting points there. It was really interesting to learn about how you how you've tackled some of these things and where you work. In terms of the first point that you raised, how can we do an investigation when we have not many resources, which obviously comes up a lot. And as you said, we can always put budget lines in that cover the costs that might be associated with an investigation. I think most donors now are aware of the fact that there is a cost associated with doing investigations. And most donors should accept budget lines in proposals that you put forward to them for this work. And in fact, I was in a webinar recently that um, FCDO, the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office here in the UK were presenting at, and they, they, they did reiterate that point and said, please do put in a budget line for safeguarding and associated costs. And I think I would even add to that, I would encourage people to make sure that in any donor proposals, they do put in that budget line, because then if we don't include costs on safeguarding, then we're making it look to the donors that we don't need that money. So the more people who actually put it into proposals, the more we're hopefully getting that message across that, you know, actually you're asking us to be compliant on safeguarding, but, you know, it does cost money. So please do fund us for this work. In terms of the of measures when the survivors put at risk of retaliation, it's really interesting to, um, to hear about some of the approaches that you've used in the communities that you work in. And I would I would say that those approaches will work in some communities. I think 
maybe other communities where I've been involved in investigations, they might need a different approach. So obviously, it's always to to check with staff who work in those communities because they'll they'll know what the good appropriate approaches are to to deal with those issues of risk to the survivor. And as you've talked about quite a lot, I think the the, the two words that were sticking out for me from what you were saying, risk assessment and confidentiality. And again, just to to reiterate your points on that, that um, a risk assessment is really important and understanding the dynamics of the community that we're working in and, and looking at ways we can address some of those issues is really important and obviously keeping confidentiality as well. And I think both of those are really important to the other point that you were talking about, which is if the perpetrator's powerful and there's a sort of certain fear within the organization of of approaching a safeguarding investigation because of this person and what what retaliation they might be capable of again doing a risk assessment of that and also confidentiality as you said really important in that and uh, in terms of risk assessment we talk about risk assessment and it's often done as a kind of one-off piece of work at the beginning of an investigation but really we need to keep updating our risk assessment as the investigation goes on and thinking at every stage okay what happens now we've done some interviews or we've done this action does this then set off another another sort of risk so in one investigation I was involved with we were even doing risk assessments on an hourly basis after each person that we spoke to thinking about okay we've now interviewed this person if there's a breach of confidentiality, are there going to be risks to other people involved? And really just being aware of that and making sure that we keep everyone involved as as safe as we possibly can. Thank you so very much, Oge, for taking us in depth and really unpacking the nuances around culture of silence and culture of impunity. And Lucy for you know, adding to that, the, the updating of the risk assessments and maintaining confidentiality. Now, Lucy, you mentioned some challenges that you've come across in the course of your work. Do tell us how you have approached them. How have you dealt with them in a practical way? Thank you, Eleanor. So, one of the the first issue that I raised was the concern from organisations that they don't have skill the skills for investigations or the capacity. Well, there are there are several ways of approaching that. First of all, if it is a really serious safeguarding incident, then you might want to look at getting in external expertise. And I'll I'll be honest, there is a cost associated with that. And again, that's something that that we would hope that donors would be really approachable in terms of helping with the costs around that. And we have in the Safeguarding Resource and Support Hub, we have Safeguarding Consultants Directory as well, just to mention that, where we have lots of consultants who are working in the context that we're doing a lot of our work in, in terms of humanitarian and development work, who might be able to be approached to help with safeguarding investigations. 
But that's that's a short term fix. In the long term, obviously, the answer would be to increase capacity within organisations to handle investigations themselves. And there's there's a lot of training out there in the sector. As was mentioned, as you mentioned at the beginning, I do training for Bond and CHS Alliance, but there are also other trainings that are going on. But I would also say as well, look at the skills that might already exist within your organisation who can help on safeguarding investigations. So your colleagues who are working on gender based violence, for example, who might have experience in those areas, or you might have colleagues who've come from perhaps working in different sectors, but working in in related fields. So perhaps in health or social care or so on, who might be able to bring those skills into investigation. In terms of the concern that gets raised quite a lot is if the perpetrator sues or takes legal action against the organisation, I get asked this quite a lot. And it is, it is a real concern. And again, I'll be honest, it, it does, it can happen. But this shouldn't prevent us from addressing safeguarding concerns when they come up. We shouldn't be afraid of the consequences so that we, we don't actually tackle them. And the best way to mitigate against this is obviously to follow due process. So to make sure that you've done a, a thorough and appropriate internal investigation, that you've followed all your organisation's procedures, that you've uh, you've done everything correctly and appropriately can help you then if there's any comeback in terms of the investigation. And then the concern that if you have a safeguarding issue or if you have a safeguarding investigation, doesn't that mean then that you're less likely to get donor funding because the donors think that you have this issue within your organisation? Well, again, donors are more and more becoming aware that safeguarding is safeguarding concerns do happen within organisations. And in fact, we say that if you're not getting any reports made in terms of safeguarding or issues raised, then that doesn't mean that you're not having any safeguarding or sexual exploitation, abuse and harassment cases happening within your programme. These issues happen in the general population anyway, so we know that the likelihood is that they are happening in the work that we're doing. So no reports doesn't mean that you don't have any problems and that everything's being done well. In fact, what it means is that you do not have the systems in place that are enabling people to come forward and to report. And in terms of the donors or any kind of negative repercussions that there might be even in organizations I think sometimes people can be reluctant even to escalate this up to senior management to their regional office or to their head office because they think it it might look like a a failing of their program management but we should be in a place now where we do realize as I say that these kind of incidents and concerns do happen and donors should be aware of this and it shouldn't impact on your donor funding what should impact on your donor funding is if you don't deal with them appropriately and effectively but if you can show again that you've you followed due process and you are tackling this then donors should be open to that and it's certain there certainly shouldn't be punitive measures of removing your funding if you are trying to address these issues okay what's your experience of some of these issues that i've been raising yeah, thanks, Lucy. Very great points there. There is never really an easy way out. But I want to share an experience on the last point. 
about you know an organization being less likely to get donor funding because of an investigation or SEAH concern. We had a meeting with some executive directors of some CSOs we are, we are working with in Nigeria just a couple of months back. And, you know, we are discussing safeguarding and, and that. And one of them, and, and this, this concern really came up, you know, about, you know, fear again that the donors that, you know, will blacklist them and, you know, they will not be open or allowed to receive funding again from donors. And then one of them, actually, one of the participants, the CEOs of organizations that we are working with, you know, shared an experience he had that there was actually a case like that reported to the organization and the organization has handled it because they had the reporting mechanisms and then they got this report. So they've actually, you know, started the investigation and concluded it and they found out that the person was actually in breach of the organizational policy and adequate measures were taken. So a donor came to them, was doing due diligence, and, you know, asked about this issue. They heard about it from the community because apparently this funder had gone to the community to find out more about the organization, you know, and all that. They are just really doing their due diligence quite well. And then when they came to the organization, they were like, oh, what of this case? And they were very open to share the steps that they took in addressing that concern and even the lessons that they've learned from it and where they need to strengthen more. And the founder was quite happy with that and, you know, took them on. Where it would have been disastrous was where they have, if they had tried to cover up, maybe they've not done anything and they were not trying to cover up, maybe lie that, oh, you know, so that would have been disastrous. So I think organizations and this part, and I, I will tell you that this is not even an international NGO, it's a local NGO and a CSO that we are, we are, we are partnering with. And, you know, they share this, and it was actually a great learning for all the other CSOs in that room. So this is actually important because most times, especially for smaller CSOs, it's really a concern for them. And that's why they try to hide it. They don't want to, you know, bring up the issue of SEA, you know, thinking that when it happens, it's really like a failure on their part. But what will be really the failure is when you haven't addressed the things as should as you, as you should when the preventive measures are not there and then where the response measures are not there that's where indeed would have been but if the prevention measures are there you have all the things you have your training of staff committee members you train them you have the reporting channels you know that you constantly review you constantly sensitize the community and then when the report comes in you handle it you know, well, where you don't have the capacity, Lucy, just like you mentioned, probably seek out support from elsewhere, then try to also build your staff capacity and see where you can actually even leverage more. If it's a, a local organization, maybe get support from your ING, your partner to help you if they have that capacity in investigation to help you to, to, to handle the investigations and you learn from it. 
So these are really the things that um, organizations need to put in place. And not and that's when you do that, you'll be confident even to say, oh yes, I did this, I did that, I did that. So this person actually acted not in line with the values of, of the organization, you know, and then this is what we are doing. So that way the donors will actually even be happy and continue to fund. And so that's really what I have to add. Thank you very much for those points. Indeed, truly illuminating, very practical steps, short and long-term, and also the sharing of case studies. That's it for today. We hope you found it a useful conversation and thank you once again to Oge and Lucy. There were a lot of recommendations. So here is our summary of the top takeaways. One, investigations are hardly ever straightforward. It's important to acknowledge this. However, we cannot do nothing. Otherwise, we risk the safety of the people we are working with. Two, we can learn from each other by having open discussions and sharing learning, whilst not breaching confidentiality, of course. Three, Add a budget line to proposals for safeguarding work. Most donors should accommodate this. Four, there is a lot of guidance and there are a lot of resources available, including on the Safeguarding Resource and Support Hub. Thank you once again for listening.